And oftentimes when trials come, our, our faith is pressed and tested. And you tell us that that is one of the designs of trials uh, for our, our faith to grow, to be uh, put through the fire and to be refined. And yet those are moments too when we were, uh, we're wondering. And I thank you for the freedom in the Bible to ask those questions that when we can't see you like Psalm 13, you know, how long, O oh Lord? And a whole list of songs that are just laments and sadness when we see things are not as they ought to be. And it breaks our hearts and we experience it personally. Perhaps we experience it corporately, even as a people group or as a nation and certainly as a world that is broken. And so we want to be honest with you today and, and say thank you for giving us glimpses. And we pray that you would establish and fortify and strengthen our faith today or perhaps give us vision for the first time, whatever you would like to do. As we've already sung and, and heard testimonies of your goodness and now have a chance to dig just a little bit into your word. We do pray for Lindsay as he mourns the loss of his mother who he's been caring for from a distance and then putting a lot of miles up 75 north to be by her side. And we pray for the family too as, as they mourn as a whole, not only uh, Lindsay and Winetta and the kids, but all of his siblings as well. And we pray this will be a moment when you bring the family together and unify them, especially where maybe there have been some misunderstandings or hurt. And we pray that this would be used for your glory and that we'd have a deeper understanding, not only the brokenness, but of the beauty that you bring from ashes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Eric is going to read the scripture verse, and I'll come up and uh, talk about it in just a second. morning our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis Genesis 12 the first seven verses Genesis 12 1 to 7 in your pew Bible it is on page 11 the call of Abram the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site to the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offering, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the word of God.
Okay, thanks, Eric. Well, you know, the title of the message is really where we're trying to head today to take a look at this really big section. So sometimes as we go through the next year and we're reading through the Bible chronologically, uh, sometimes I'll try to take a particular text and speak to it. But I thought it was worth kind of looking at the whole section because you see a couple of themes emerging from Genesis 12, which was just read as the launching point for this week's reading, all the way to Genesis 42 because it has a picture of families and dysfunction, right? They put the fun in dysfunction here in Genesis 12 through 42, and families can be, uh, can be a mess. I wonder if you think maybe of a family reunion. We, we've never had anything like that. But if you were to gather all of the people, because we're kind of spread out, everybody in your life together at one, one particular time, I'm suspecting you could identify one, one individual at least who's the odd person or who causes a lot of tension or is maybe just, you know, not connected. Maybe they wouldn't show up. Perhaps you have that person in your mind, you know, somebody who's just a little strange or who's created a lot of uh, hardship inside the family. Is that person you in your mind? I don't know. It could be. You, you might be showing up in somebody else's mind right now. Let's face it. But any, anytime you get people together, uh, especially in families, there's, there's a history, there's hurt, it's hard to get over that sometimes, and there's a lot of dysfunction in families. And what's amazing about the Bible is when you open up and start reading, you get kind of what you expect in that, in that respect. From the beginning, these first families are completely dysfunctional, and yet it's against the backdrop of God's faithfulness. Even in their dysfunction and their mess, God continues to be faithful, and when Eric was reading, he was underscoring this promise to Abram that he would uh, bless Abram. That he would bless those who bless him, curse those who curse him, but through him he'd build a great nation. And that's where we start looking at this entire pattern. Now, if you know a little earlier in, in Genesis, just to set the stage extremely briefly, in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the story of creation, that God created all things, and he created them good. In fact, good, good. And mankind was the crown of his creation. Unfortunately, in Genesis chapter 3, we have what's called the fall. When man sins, man and woman together, and as a result, there's brokenness everywhere. Immediately, their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. And you see the first dysfunction occurring automatically when the man and the woman are blaming each other for what went wrong. And then they begin hiding and they try to make things right on their own. And God comes and, well, he dresses it with them and they hide in shame and in fear. And for what we might call the, the worldview presented by the Bible, this explains all the brokenness that happens. There's hope, however, and that's part of what the good news is, that God will bring redemption. He'll purchase back what was lost. And even there in the beginning of the garden, we start seeing glimmers of how that's going to come about in the person of Christ. But for the time being, those are promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And even here, for Abram in Genesis 12, we see there's a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. You know, right after Genesis 3 with the fall, what's the first thing that happens? Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, murder, brothers, fighting with one another. 
anger inside your heart. This is in the family unit. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that when we start reading through Genesis 12, we get a picture of faith and family dysfunction. And that is just the, the pattern throughout the book of Genesis. The first people that we find, Abram here, we see, becomes Abraham later, and he marries somebody, Sarah. And when you start looking at these passages, uh, automatically you'll see some trends that emerge from this. And, and here are the basic trends. There's a lot of fear in Abram and Sarah's life. There's deceit. They play favorites. And they take matters into their own hands. I mean, write Genesis 12. Isn't it a beautiful passage Eric read? It's so wonderful. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have a child. It's awesome. And right immediately, if you have your Bible, and maybe skipping around some, just if you want to look, um, I don't have this up there, but in Genesis 12, right down a little bit later, as he's going to Egypt, he says to his wife, I know you're a beautiful, what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you and they say, this is my wife, then they'll kill me, but we'll let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He's afraid of what happens and because in the culture and the custom of that day, apparently this beautiful woman might be available or less available depending on the relationship. So he says, look, just lie and say you're my sister. This is Father Abraham. I'm going to bless everybody through you. And the first thing he struggles with out of his fear is deceiving and shading the truth just a bit. In Genesis 15, 1, you see even God addresses this. Do not be afraid, Abram. He knows Abram as a man of fear. Sarah, Abram's wife, wants to accelerate God's plan because there's this promise of a child, but she's barren. So she devises her own scheme. In chapter 16, Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Hey, I've got an alternate plan. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So she's taking matters into her own hands. What's ironic, if you look down a little bit, in fact, this woman turns out to be pregnant. There in verse 4, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She said, hey, I want this person to get pregnant. Now she hates her. I mean, this, this is some drama. You think you have family drama? Well, there's a reason why. It's right back here as well. In back down in verse 6 then, Sarah mistreated Hagar. She was just doing what she had told her. And then there's this promise again of birth that still hasn't happened. Decades are passing in chapter 18. Sarah laughs in verse 12. She laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out, my master is old, well, I now have this pleasure that is of bearing a child. And look at verse 15, Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I didn't laugh. <laughs> when she was confronted, does this sound like a completely functional family to you? They're, they're, they're a mess. I mean, you, you can just keep looking. I highlighted all these different passages where this occurs again. And again, you think Abram would have learned, but in chapter 20, they relocate to another place. And there, Abram said of his wife, Sarah, hey, she's my sister. He's still doing it. And that pattern, interestingly enough, continues with Isaac, who was the child of promise. In fact, God does fulfill his promise eventually. In the person of Isaac. And Isaac then 
well, he's going to marry somebody as well as uh, and Rebecca. And you see in chapter 22 is this, this story of uh, Isaac, uh, you know, Abraham being, being tested. Uh, but then he wants, Isaac does, after his mother dies, to have a, a wife. And so he goes over and he ends up marrying Rebecca, who's related through the family as well. And so you can imagine that maybe there might be some issues coming up. And in fact, there are, because in chapter 26, when the men of that place asked him, that is Isaac, about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. I mean, do you see the pattern here? This is a father and now a son, and they're repeating exactly the same things that have been done previously. Verse 34, when I, uh, Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now they're starting to have kids who are marrying people into the family who become a source of grief. And it's just right there. And you talk about deception, right? They have these kids, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's eventually going to marry somebody named Rachel. And guess what? The pattern here is fear, deceit. They're playing favorites. Each, each of these parents has favorites. You, maybe you felt like in your family, oh, there's always a favorite. You know, perhaps you may perceive that. Well, it, it says that here. You can look at it. It says, eh, they preferred this person over that person in terms of a child. And the same thing happens with Jacob and Rachel. Some of you know, even uh, Isaac and, and, and Rebecca, and Rebecca's going to give birth, and in the womb, these kids are fighting with each other, and out you know, comes Esau first, and then Jacob follows. Jacob's name means deceiver. So if you're reading this stuff, you probably notice the pattern of fear, deceit, favorites, and taking matter into their own hands, even in Jacob and Rachel. I mean, I, you'll have to take my word for it, because you're going to get, it just keeps going on. It's the same pattern. Jacob's whole life is built on deceiving other people. And, you know, his mom, Rebecca, wants him to get the blessing from the father. So he steals it from his brother, Esau. Esau was kind of the guy who hangs out at Cabela's and goes out and skins raccoons and wears them on his head. And, you know, Jacob is the guy who stays back at home and he's posting on Pinterest all the time. And he's looking for the best meals and he ends up stealing his brother's birthright through deception and ironically he's going to get his wife eventually because he goes to another family relation looks for a wife works seven years for her and guess what the deceiver is deceived he's, he marries a different daughter doesn't know it until after the it's been sealed and then he has to work seven more years and then his relationship with it's all deception and lies And they're all taking matters into their own hands. That's the pattern in Genesis. Now here's, here's, here's what it seems to be saying. There's probably patterns in your life as well. Patterns of sin, patterns, it may not look exactly like that. But you shouldn't be surprised, in fact, you should expect. If you take some time to consider your own life and also look behind you and see some generations back, some things that are being passed down from one generation to the next. There are probably patterns in your own life as well. And I, I believe it's worth, and, and we, we ought to take stock and consider and reflect and think about for a second, how is that being manifest in my own life? 
to do some, to do some thinking about who you are today as it's been shaped by a few things. One would be your family of origin as you think about it. And I put a, a bunch of questions up there. Some of this comes from Peter Scazzaro, who was a pastor and is a pastor in New York City, uh, a church that he planted and it grew. And then some of you know his story. One day his wife came to him and said, hey, I'm leaving the church because I don't like the lead pastor, <laughs> which was him. And of course, they went through a process where he said, well, we need some counseling because we need to find out what's wrong with you about his wife. And of course, in the midst of counseling, he figured out, I have all these patterns of sin that I never saw that were, came up because now he'd been hit in the head with a two by four. His wife was ready to leave him. And unfortunately, some of us wait until that point to start saying, huh, I wonder what's going on inside of me that's creating this scenario. And our pride, a lot of times, is what gets in the way, the fear of shame, of getting help. And ironically, all you're doing is putting stuff up that's going to be even harder to deal with later. Some of you know that Jill came to me, yeah, two years into church planting, and basically said, you know, we have these boxes that keep showing up at our house. The boxes are the baggage we both carried into our, our marriage. And uh, some of our specific, unique, created baggage in the course of our marriage as well. But they keep coming to our front door, and we're writing return to sender on it. And I'm going to unpack the boxes. Which was a very unpleasant thing for me to hear to say, because I, I knew I had to go with her and start unpacking them. But you know, it's hard when you're a pastor, and I'm sure it's true for anybody. I've got all the answers. I'm sorry. You come to me for counseling, right? And yet, I can't get through this on my own. And the answer was no. I couldn't. I can't see it. I don't, I don't, I don't quite get it. And it's personal. See, with you, it's usually not personal. <laughs> In this case, it's very personal. Hey, you've got a problem that you have created, and we need to look at you. That's not very comfortable, but I can tell you that process of unpacking those boxes, as hard as it is, is a wonderful way to identify those patterns and then begin to, to break them. And some of them come just quite simply from our family of origin. And these are some questions. There's more. You can do something called a genogram and start unpacking it a little bit. Do you see generational themes like addictions, abuse, divorce, depression, greed, envy, abuse of power? How would you describe looking at your parents' marriage, grandparents, look back a couple of generations? If you know them, some of you may not know your family of origin necessarily, but you grew up in a home or a place that had some influence on you, and it shaped you. How about conflict? I mean, that in, growing up for me, conflict was just, uh, peace was just the absence of conflict. <laughs> so we made sure that we, even if there was potential conflict, we just didn't talk about it. So that's some of the baggage I brought into marriage. Because, you know, if you're married, there tends to be conflict. At least after the first year. I mean, let's, everybody thinks they're not going to have conflict. But the divorce, divorce rate's over 50%. So I, I don't understand. How does that happen all of a sudden? I mean, you start figuring out who you are, right? What are you going to do with that? You're going to wade through those waters? You know, my, my own tendency is to go to a default mode. And unhealthy patterns maybe I've learned in that area that don't allow me to move forward. Yours are probably different. Maybe they're family secrets. How do you handle money? It can become a source of conflict as well. 
What about your ethnic identity? For those of us in the dominant culture, we don't realize uh, how our identity may have shaped us because we don't have to struggle with that quite in the same way. It's people who are from the non-dominant culture where that, that sense of identity is very much attached to the color of skin. It is more for, for those of us than we realize, but we often don't see it. And it's not what we lead with, but it takes some time to reflect. How has that shaped you? How is success measured in your family? No, do you think in those terms of success and failure? Have you done all the things that are expected of you according to your family? So this is just some time to think about what are the patterns in my life that maybe I've brought into marriage, into how I parent, into how I work in the workplace, into how I lead a ministry. And if you're unaware of those things, then you're creating an opportunity for some ongoing conflict in the future. And you're, and cr you're creating places for dysfunctionality. You can also for, consider some uh, personal experiences. If you want to go through a process like this, look at the main shaping influences in your life. What loss has been there, what mistakes what childhood environment did you grow up in? And what messages did you receive from them? Any key turning points? You know, big shifts. It could, be, it could be marriage. It could be the birth of a child. It could be the loss of a job. Where have you done all of your learning? Failures, that kind of thing. Maybe even unmet desires. You've always wanted, but you never got it. Those things all shape who you are. And they can become an opportunity for expressing dysfunction all around you. It doesn't have to be that way, of course. Um, there's hope, you know. It's not like you're, you have to be stuck. And a part of what we do when we gather together is kind of talk about getting unstuck in those things. What does it look like to move forward? So just a, a couple of brief thoughts. And I apologize if you're writing that stuff down. Uh, but breaking out of the pattern. Just a couple of things to consider. It's more complex than this, but sometimes it's pretty simple. I, I would say the first step in breaking out of that pattern is just receive a new life and a new identity. Let's assume you want to change some of these things. Christ comes to us and says, behold, I make all things new. All things means all things. I'm addressing even the dysfunction in your life. And the entry point to that, according to Jesus himself, is to be born again. He talks to this guy, Nicodemus. He says, you know, you need a new start. And the imagery there is of a new life, you know, starting as a baby, starting afresh. And that comes through saying, yes, I realize in that pattern of creation, fall, the fall is so profound. I need someone to redeem me and I can't do it. I'm tired of trying because all I do is end up with a mess. And that's where Jesus steps in and says, hey, I make all things new. You know, let's, let's, let's do this. And that's saying yes. We've heard of the language of faith. Yes to Christ. Starting that new journey. Receiving new life. Some of you know this verse. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So there's a promise of newness. That's step one. The second step is then receive new information. I mean, so you've got a new life and now you need to, you need to be kind of rewired, Right? Uh, and so you need some more data. You need some more input as well. And this is kind of some language of growth that Jesus, uh, by virtue of his spirit, uses through Peter, who's writing down, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. New life? Great. But you don't just stay in that place. Now you've got to crave something new. Get the new information. What does it look like for me to function well? 
That's stuff that God's given you. And the delivery point for that, obviously, is his word, where he tells us and instructs us how we ought to behave. But his people, too. You're called into community. You're not doing this alone. There's people who have been doing this for years. And you can identify some of your own dysfunction even thousands of years ago here in the book of Genesis. But there's hope. And so we gather in community. We learn from God's word, his spirit himself, who fills us, guides us, and instructs us. We get new information, but then we develop new patterns. And this is really what we would call discipleship, right? Jesus says, go and make disciples. What are you doing? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. There's a new pattern that you need to develop in your life. And we do that. And we need to learn. We need to sit. We need to explore. One of the reasons I really like cross-cultural ministry is because when you gather with people who all have the same background, whether it's ethnicity or, or national identity or whatever, you tend to be blind to certain things. That somebody from a different culture can come in and look very clearly and say, wow, you guys are really greedy in the United States of America. Oh, what do you mean? 401k, I need a million dollars. Like somebody from the outside looking in can say, I wonder if there's a heart problem going on in there. It might not be. But you can see more perceptively. And, and, and possibly you can also see some of the things to celebrate. It's not just critical. The gospel will criticize parts of every single culture, but will affirm other things as well. And that's where some people have missed the boat. You come in saying, we got it all figured out. Let me go in there and tell you how to live. White middle class is the way to go. Let me show you what the gospel looks like. Look at my life. And you have some blind spots. So, and there will be some things that are affirmed no matter where you are. Some beautiful things. But there's things that are critiqued as well. That's why we need each other. We, we have to value the experience of the other people around us. And that's part of what it means to be a family, right? Even when those hard parts come together and you see those things, you stick with it because you're family. Right, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to learn? Are you going to develop maybe patterns that are new that come from that experience? And I think we have the opportunity to do that. When I say new patterns, you know, it's like Jesus comes and starts saying, what do you really value? This is his most famous sermon. He says, what is it that you value the most? And he starts talking about character issues in the heart. You know, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You want to know what it means to be great in my kingdom? Know your poverty before me. You can't do this on your own. Blessed are the meek, not the ones who are wielding their power, mowing people, those who are gentle in spirit. That, those are the kind of kingdom priorities Jesus is testing us out. I'm saying these are new patterns because if you have a meek spirit and your tendency in a marriage is to lash out in defensiveness, but you're beginning to be, to drink in the, the newness of life that is offered and praying about that and asking for God to show you, you may begin to respond differently and saying, I'm going to leave with meekness and say, I'm sorry, instead of start pointing the finger and say, you're the one who's responsible for this. That's the hope of the gospel and the good news of Christ as well. So just summing this whole thing up on this point, it might be worth asking in what ways are you shaping your life now according to your past rather than according to the values and expectations of Christ in the family of God? That's a big question. It takes some reflection. But I, I would just suggest that if you really want to break out of some of these patterns, you have to evaluate that and spend some time thinking about it. And I don't think a lot of us want to do that. 
You know, change as a, as a concept sounds good. But as a reality, it takes, it's hard to do. I think most of us are pretty happy with where we are. We might theoretically say, I'd like to change, but I'm unwilling to do anything about it. I mean, do you know this? So every time you make a New Year's resolution, if you're not the person who's accustomed to exercising, you say, I want to change. I want to get fitter. Why is it that you're the perfect person for all these people making money at, you know, Gorilla Shop or whatever that place is called over there? What is it? Whatever. I don't know. Crunch. Where did I get Gorilla? Uh, all these places, you know, they make money off of, of course, people who intend to do something but just never do it. Church is often the same way, right? Change in life as well. And I would say this, if, if you, you know, I, I do think that the family unit, the husband and wife, is, is, is the building block for this. And look at these relationships here. They're passing it on. They needed to spend some time saying, hey, how are we doing and what patterns do you have? You know, we have marriage mentoring. We have that. We have trained lay leaders who will spend uh, a couple of months. And all they're doing, it's, it's really you. You give the input. It's an engineer designed the program. You find those trouble spots, and you have some space to talk about it in a safe place with people who are for you. You want to make a change in your marriage? Do something like that. There's, there's things that are available to you. And I know some of you have been through that. And from what I've been told, it's been helpful for everybody. You always need that. You need, a, you need an oil change, you know, because before your gaskets start blowing. And that's part of what we offer. So now just real briefly, the backdrop to all this is God's faithfulness to his promises. And again, we can look and see right from the beginning, God promises, hey, you're going to have a son, and I'm going to build a great nation through him. And we know what happened with the dysfunction. They're going to accelerate the process. And yet God's still faithful. Because we find that in her old age, Sarah does, in fact, bear a child. And uh, Isaac shows up. And there's great, there's, there's great promises even here in, in Genesis 22. In, in verse 17, I'll surely bless you, he says again. And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will, take, descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So there's somebody who's in the midst of dysfunction, still walking out by faith, and was tested greatly in the person of Isaac, but that promise didn't come immediately. So when we think about God's promises and his faithfulness, we need to understand that his timing is very different than ours. And you read through the book of Genesis, God said, I'm going to be faithful to this promise, just stick with me. And then you're kind of looking at your watch, saying, you're on the time, like it's, so we want God's, you know, to do his things on our time frame, not on his. And one of the things we see in Genesis is that he's doing this in his own time. I suspect the case is true for you as well. You know, the timing, why don't you accelerate it? A little bit. It's just different than ours. We went through the entire book of Hebrews 11 last chapter last fall, and that was what it was all about. All these people had promises that some of them they never saw in their entire lifetime, yet God was going to make them true, better, waiting for a future time. So it could be that you die waiting for God's promises. It's possible. And yet he is true to them. He'll, f he'll fulfill them. 
We can know God will be true to his promises so we can have a measure of rest while waiting for them. And I think that's what part of Hebrews 11 is about. Hebrews talks about rest. Like there's a longing and a yearning for those things to be made right. And that's, you should feel that. But there's also a rest in knowing that, oh yeah, he's got this. He'll, he'll get there in his own timing. And I can look back at his faithfulness and read in Genesis and see, wow, he did it. And what's also interesting about this faithfulness of God is that his method is often unexpected. So he had this promise, he fulfilled it with uh, Isaac being born, and then he says, go sacrifice your son. Now that's an odd method. <laughs> the, the child of promise, I want you to give him up. So when you, if you enter into this thing we call walking with God, here's some things you can expect. His timing will be different than yours, and his methods may be unusual. Things don't always go according to plan. Are you okay with that? I, 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 I say I am theoretically, but it's hard sometimes, right? I don't understand what's going on. I've done all these things, and yet I don't see any of this stuff happening. Trust me. You know, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm... And I'm doing it in ways you wouldn't even expect. So if you expect it, it could be that it's definitely not going to happen that way. Which is why I never aim for the hole when I golf. <laughs> By the way, I'm aimed somewhere else. Because it never goes where I'm aiming. So why aim for the hole? <laughs> Maybe that's a dysfunction in my head. I don't know. But the other thing we see here is that about his people. He uses ordinary and messy people. This, to me, is a theme all throughout the Bible. You know what God is called all throughout the Bible? He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. We just looked at those people. Would you want to attach yourself to them and be known? I'm the God of this guy who habitually lies and who deceives others and who's constantly trying to make my plan go according to his. But I'm going to be known as the God of Abraham. I'm going to be known as the God. Of, I'm going to be known as the God of Israel. And as we read through this Bible, that's not a good choice if you're looking for a, a showcase type of people. Because it's not about them, right? It's about God's faithfulness to his promises. And what we didn't examine is him coming and saying, I'm making a covenant, and I'm going to be true to what I've said. Even in your unfaithfulness, I will be true to what I've given you. You'll play the harlot, but I will be faithful. And isn't that good news for us who feel sometimes like we just keep doing the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over and you look at the next generation and you're like, why are they doing the same things I did? God's faithful. It, it, isn't, it isn't your faithfulness to him that's the qualification. It's, it's your neediness of him. It's recognizing this. But here's the thing. If you say yes to that, say, God, give me that kind of faith, he's not going to leave you unchanged. And you can start something new in the legacy that you're passing down. But it's going to take some reflection. It's going to take some hard, hard moments. It's going to take some, some work. But Christ is there with you. Even when you walk through what feels like the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. Because he's the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham is the God who's here today in this place. Through his word talking to you. Same God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, that to me is something that we can, we can trust. We can latch on to. And we can say, okay, we can take a look at this dysfunction because we know you don't want us to stay there. And there's the hope of change and creating a new legacy. I want that. 
Sign me up, not just in theory, but in practice. That's what I hope we can be doing even as we journey through this entire process. You know, we started about this whole idea of creation, fall, and redemption. But there's a picture in the Bible of Jesus coming, and he's, you know, they're waiting for Jesus to come. He arrives. He says, the kingdom of God is is near. It's in me. I embody it. I inaugurate it. I'm starting in flesh. I'm bringing it about. And I'm making all things new, and I'm giving new life to people, and uh, I'm starting that process. But we still right, are awaiting something in the future, and it's called restoration when Christ returns and we anticipate. And all those things that are left undone, all those promises that were not quite yet fulfilled come about together. And we're gathered as a family of God enjoying a feast and celebrating that he has restored everything. And there is no more. There's no more Lindsay Turner's mother dying. There's no more marriages being broken. There's no more teens rising up in rebellion and you responding in anger and lashing out and thinking, gosh, maybe I was the same way. <laughs> None of that. And that promise can be yours only if, according to the Bible, you're not trusting in yourself for redemption. Because you cannot accomplish it. Only Christ can. And that's why we're called and we're drawn to say, in my dysfunction, I'm going to look to Jesus again and again and again and again and again. Father, I do pray that this morning you would give us a sense of the presence of God. And maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe somebody here, perhaps for the first time, is saying, you know, I, I see that pattern in me and I look at the Bible, and it's, it's not candy coating. It's, we're, we're all broken. How do we fix that? How do we move forward? We all have some sort of design for it. And the Bible's telling us that your, your, your design sticks. It, it, it works. It's, oh, it's a solution. For, uh, for all of us, no matter how broken we may be, part of it is maybe we just don't understand that brokenness. And I pray you'd reveal it to us before we feel like we're bond repair. None of us is but we can feel like that. And if there's people here who feel that way today, that they would know that Christ speaks and, and, and addresses them where they are. That's the beginning point for this journey of faith. And maybe for, for some of us who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board, but I've been kind of lackadaisical. You know, I haven't taken a look at this recently and I, I want to change or pray they would take those next steps, whatever those look like, and let your spirit do his work and see the vision of what could be in this kingdom of God. So we're grateful for Christ who died though we certainly didn't deserve it. While we were still sinners, he died for us and we're thankful that he uses in his time and by his method ordinary messy people like me and everybody else here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.